Good morning, I am Bob, and I'll be reading our scripture verse this morning. For that, we go back to Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 40, and pick up where Stan left off. Chapter, uh, verses 12, hear, hear God's word. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a, in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And whom made him understand? Whom taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like the fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then would you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely had their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths faint and be, and are weary, and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they will run and not be weary. They shall, not walk, they shall walk and not faint. This is God's word. Morning. Move the mic stand here. It's good to uh, be with you all this morning. I wasn't too sure uh, how many of us were going to be here. I know everyone's away traveling and uh, with the holidays and Christmas, I actually had a friend of mine uh, about a month ago. He was telling me about how one of his friends is pr uh, preaching this Sunday. 
And he's like, you know, it's, it's a Sunday when no one's there. Uh, he got asked to preach. And he said, so when are you preaching again? And I was like, uh, the uh, Sunday when no one's there. <laughs> but uh, I really do count it as a privilege to, to preach God's word. Uh, any opportunity I get. And thank you, Stan. I'm, I'm glad to help you out, my friend, uh, this Sunday. Well, as we approach the new year, we begin to reflect upon the past year. We often do that. We look back upon accomplishments we made. We look back on heartaches. We look back on big changes that happened in our life, maybe a new job, new family, marriage. And then often what we do is we, we look ahead to the new year, what we, what we want to accomplish. And I think that's a good, it's a good thing to do that. It's a good thing to set New Year's resolutions. You know, we should be very purposeful, intentional, and determined in the way that, that we live our lives. As Christians, though, I think the greatest resolve that we should have entering every new year should be that this year I want to walk closer with God. I want to love God more. But the way that we love God more, the way that we mature as Christians is only to the degree that we know God. One well-known pastor said that the supreme need in every hour of difficulty and distress, it is for a fresh vision of God. Seeing him, all else takes proper perspective and proportion. And so I thought it would be good for us as a church at the end of the year and as we enter into a new one that we should take a fresh look at God this morning. What we, knew, what we need so often is we need to look away from us. We need to look away from who we are, look away from what we might become, what we might want to be, and we need to look at who he is. Because right thinking about God leads to right living. And as we think correctly about God, it ought to touch every area of our life. As I've studied this passage in Isaiah 40 this past month, I've realized how much I need this passage. I need to hear these truths that I'm about to preach on over and over again. Knowing God, it is the great jewel of Christianity. God being really, really big is the news that we need to hear as we enter a new year. I know from the very beginning that I'm going to absolutely fail to preach the subject because the preacher, he's called upon this task to stand on behalf of God and proclaim him. It's an impossible task. And I mean, the lines of this book, of the scriptures, they are worth weight of gold. It will take an eternity just to begin to know the name of God. It's a marvelous pursuit that began when we became a Christian, to know God, to seek him out, and that, that will continue through all of eternity, seeking out, searching out the beauties of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, let me set the context for us. And if you have your Bibles, please open up to Isaiah chapter 40, and you have your hand out there to help you follow along. I know it's a Bigger uh, passage this morning, but I promise you we won't be here till 2019. We're, we'll plow this through this quickly. Well, in the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, 
it's largely prophecies that, of judgment that's coming upon Israel because they have forsook the one true and living God and they have gone after idols. Then in chapter 40, it is like the hinge of this great door of hope that swings wide open. It's like the dawning of a new day. God begins in verse 1 of Isaiah 40 by telling his, telling his prophet that he wants him to speak comfort to his people. But in order to be comforted, comfort has to be grounded in reality. Or it's really no comfort at all. It's, it's cheap comfort, false hope that puts a momentary band-aid that's going to fall off eventually from your wound. That's why in verses 6 to 8, the Lord begins by telling us the kind of false comfort we shouldn't run to. We shouldn't look to mankind to rescue us. Man's determination and, and his hopes to rescue himself, they are empty promises. They are founded upon men. So whatever you think upon great men, whatever you think upon great thinkers, this is what God says about them. They are all like a petal of flower. It weathers, it fades. Mankind is like grass. He is here today, and he's gone tomorrow. There is no hope in mankind. There is no hope in a political leader. There is no hope in a church leader. There is no hope in us. The good news that God gives to his people to comfort them is this message of church history. It is the message for Mulberry. It is the message for America it is the message for every nation. It is, it is the message for every home and for every one of our lives. Behold your God. The good news is to look away from yourself and to look to one who is perfect in every way that we are not. In this passage, we don't find seven steps to a better family or to a better marriage or to a better church. But what we do find is the root that affects all those areas the most practical thing we, that we could do is to behold God. A.W. Tozer wrote that the most important thing that comes into your mind is what you think about God. Stan mentioned last week that Christianity is not a religion where God calls us to check our brains at the door and then to take, come in and to take everything in by blind faith. It's just the opposite. God calls us to think and to think deeply. And one method of effective communicating and teaching is to ask questions. Jesus did it all the time in his ministry. And half of this passage is actually filled with questions that God's asked us. Effective questions are powerful and they are meant to promote deep thinking in us and pondering. God wants us to use our minds he uses questions like a surgeon uses his knife. He wants to cut in us a new level of understanding. Let me ask you a question this morning. If I were to hand you a sheet of paper and it were to say on it, God is like blank, fill in the blank, how would you answer that? One thing that God wants us to know, and we will see this in this chapter that whatever you fill the blank in with, it's inadequate. God is like nothing we could ever imagine or think. God is always higher than the highest thoughts we could have of him. 
And he, he stoops now in Isaiah 40, and he gives us four pictures to measure himself with. But it's all the same com- conclusion. Not like me, not like me, not like me. When God wants to tell us what he is like, he finds the biggest things that he could compare himself with. And instead of saying, I'm sort of like this, he says, I am nothing like this. What are you going to compare me to? I am superior to anything in all of creation. And by doing this, God wants us to get a high view of him and to remove any low views of God. So let's look at this passage. Here are four different pictures beginning in verse 12. Quickly, the four things are all of creation, two great nations, Three idols and four world leaders. So let's begin in verse 12. God asked, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Have you ever tried before to carry water in your hand from one place to another? It's pretty difficult, isn't it? It it doesn't take too long until the water spills out over your hands. Now, just think about this for a second. God is able to fit all that water of the earth into his hands. I mean, that's pretty big. Has any man ever tried to swim across the Pacific Ocean from California to Japan? They wouldn't get very far until they would have to turn back. Do you know that 71% of the earth is covered in water? And God is able to take the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian Ocean. He's able to take all the lakes, all the streams, all the rivers, all the tiny ponds that you drive by. And he's able to put them all in the palm of his hand. That's amazing. Not only for how much water there is, but how much that water would weigh. All the water on this earth would approximately weigh 340 quintillagallons of water. Now, in case you haven't weighed anything lately that was a quintilliton, that is, so when when I say it's 340 quintilliton that is 34 with 19 zeros. Pretty heavy. And God doesn't need two hands to hold all the water. He needs just one hand to get the job done. Next, God asks, who has measured the universe with a span of his hand? A span is, is the width of his hand. Now, here's a little bit of information of how big our universe is. In order to get to the next neighborhood galaxy beside us, it would take you 25,000 years traveling at the speed of light to get to the next galaxy. In order to just travel across the Milky Way, a recent study this year said it would take you 200,000 years traveling at the speed of light. That's just two galaxies I've mentioned. The largest telescope has found 176 billion galaxies, and yet no one has measured the immensity of the universe except one person, God. This universe is so dwarfed in comparison to the bigness of God, because God can measure that just with a span of his hand. He knows not only how big the universe, but this verse also shows us that it displays his inexhaustible knowledge. 
He knows the weight of all the dust of the earth, all the mountains and all the hills. If, if God had a kitchen, not that God does, but if he had a kitchen, he could take the smallest measuring cup in his kitchen and measure it. That should kind of lead us to ask a question in verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord and who has given him counsel? Whom did he consult and whom did he make understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? If God spoke all this into existence and he knows every inch, every weight, every measure of the universe, did God need anyone to teach him anything? Stan mentioned last week that we often need somebody to consult us in some area that we don't really know well. We often grow in our knowledge by reading a book or by watching a YouTube video, picking up our phone, asking someone in order to consult us on what's best or what we are to do. Has there ever been a moment, though, when God needed somebody to teach him something? Did God ever need to Google something? Did God ever need to sit at the feet of a teacher? And just learn about justice, learn about what is good, what is evil? Did he have someone teach him how he should direct the course of the universe? The answer in this passage is a thunderous no. God has never had a new thought. God has never needed anything to be revealed to him. His thoughts are uncreated and they are eternal. The second picture God gives us is a comparison to the nation's. In verse 15, God says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and they are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Have you ever uh, been at home, and you hear this loud scream, and it's it's your spouse panicking, and you run into the other room, and they're screaming for help? And you, you say to your spouse, you know, what, what's the matter? And he or she says, I need your help. I've spilled a drop of water on the ground. Can you please go grab some towels for me and help me wipe this up? Have you ever been at a restaurant and your waiter comes and he fills up your glass of water and then you look at the glass and you tell the waiter, hey, sir, could you please come back in here? Could you just put one more drop of water, please, in my glass? Have you ever filled up a bucket to mop with and you realize once you bring that heavy bucket inside, you know what, I need just one more drop of water to clean the floor. Have you ever walked by a mantle in your home or walked by dust on your furniture and you just stare at how fascinating that dust is? I mean, you get the picture, don't you? Drop of water, small dust, it's, it's nothing to us. It's insignificant. Humanity, we have marveled in the past that great empires like Rome and Greece and Persia and Nazi Germany, our libraries, they are filled with textbooks about the formation and the history of all of these nations. But if God can measure the universe by the span of his hand, what is Egypt? What is Rome? What is Greece? What is Great Britain? What is China? What is America? They have to count for something before God, right? No. They are like a drop in a bucket before him. In verse 17, it says, All the nations 
or as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Have you ever measured something that is less than nothing? You see the wordplay, don't you? Now, don't misunderstand. God is not saying that he doesn't care for the nations. What it means is that all of their boasted power, all their glamour, all their shine, all their size, if it were to all stand before God, they would be as nothing before him. It's like getting the smallest molecule under a microscope, and if you were able to pick it up with a little needle and then set it before the tallest NBA player that we know, that little molecule would be like nothing before that NBA player. You wouldn't be able to see it. That's what the nations are like before God. They are just like a drop in a bucket. Thirdly, God compares himself with false gods and idols. God asked the question in verse 18, to whom will you liken me to? An idol? The question, to whom will you liken to me? And then we have this picture of a man making an idol. It's meant to convey mockery of idolatry. If God is so much bigger than creation, which in theological terms we say God's transcendent, he is far above us. If God is so much greater than creation, then isn't it offensive for us to create a wooden image and say this is God? Now we might think we're a little smarter than the people back in Israel because we don't have wooden idols. We don't have anything like that set up in our homes. And in our culture, if you were to walk around Mulberry or Lakeland or Tampa, you would be pretty hard-pressed to find somebody set up a carved image in in their house. But there are people, you will find them say that they are spiritual. And they will say, well, I think God is like this. Or I feel in my heart God is like that. That is the kind of idolatry we have today. We carve up a God in our minds out of our imagination. We say, this is my God. This is what he's like, and I worship him. But if it's not the way that God has described himself in the scriptures, I'm sorry, but it's not a real God. In fact, in Romans 1.25, God condemns all of mankind because all of us, we have exchanged the truth about God And Paul says we have substituted that for a lie in place of God, and we worship created things rather than God. Idolatry, it's basically serving and worshiping something so far beneath God in his place. It means you worship something that you're devoted to. You give your utmost energy to that person or thing because you feel that that is the highest authority in your life. You obey its demands. You set your eyes upon it each day for your motivation, for your decisions. A God is that which you trust in as your chief good for your happiness. You will worship and you will serve that thing that you think will bring you supreme satisfaction. So idolatry, it can take many forms. It doesn't have to be a wooden image. We can set it up in our hearts. It can be love for for money, obtaining power, prestige, popularity, beauty, lust. Humanity was made to worship, but because of sin, it's blinded us from the glory of the infinite God, 
And what sin does, it makes creation infinite to us, and it makes God look really small. Mankind, we, we look for happiness in that which is uncertain, in that which is unsatisfying. Let me say that again. Mankind, we look for happiness in the things that are uncertain and unsatisfying. And that is why we remain restless and unsatisfied. Furthermore, we know that in our heart of hearts that nothing can ultimately satisfy our biggest longings. We enter into high school and we think, surely this next chapter of my life will bring me happiness. And when that doesn't, we long for college and think, surely college life is going to satisfy me. And then marriage after that, and then children, and then our jobs, and then grandchildren, and then retirement. But then when death comes, knocking at our door, we know that everything that we achieved, all of our relationships, death is about to cut us off from all of it. Complete hopelessness is a life apart from God. C.S. Lewis famously wrote that if there is no experience in this world that can satisfy our deepest desires, does that prove that the universe is a fraud? That we have been put here as a big joke? That God just teases us and dangles things before us? No, says C.S. Lewis. If we find ourselves that within us, a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So how in the coming year do we repent of adultery? We might think, well, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try really hard at loving God more and not loving idols. But what God's concern for us is this morning is that we would get a God that is so much bigger than our idols. We need to study him. We need to know him more. We need a God big enough calling forth such devotion that it drives out any devotion to our idols. In order to be a light to the world, we can't be steeped in idolatry like all around us. We need to show the world that we have a God that is so satisfying, we don't need the sinful pleasures the world offers us. Well, fourthly, the final picture that God gives us is comparing himself with world leaders. And the picture imagery here in verses 22 to 23 is actually, it's kind of humorous. And and it's meant to be sarcastic in a way. As these world leaders sit on their thrones and their chairs of power, there's actually one in verse 22 that's sitting over the earth. So as they sit here in authority, there is one above them that sits over everything. That is not passively sitting. It's not like, you know, God's a watchmaker and he makes the earth and now he just passively sits and watches the watch tick. When it says that God sits over the earth, it's a posture of absolute sovereignty. Whatever comes to pass in the coming year, we have to realize that God is the one who sits enthroned above the universe. God is in control over every molecule, every army, every decision, every breath. All human leaders, they are like grasshoppers before God. It's like they're strutting about with their little Burger King crowns, and they walk around in their little paper mache kingdoms, 
It's like Pilate when he said to Jesus, I have power to crucify you or to release you. And Jesus looked at Pilate and he said, you would have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. The greatest leaders, they are so unlike God because God didn't receive his power and his throne from anyone. There is not going to be another God after God. There has only been ever one dynasty, one universal ruler, and it's him. The greatest rulers in all this world, they will pass away and another one's going to come in their place. God says, they are kind of like a plant that I plant. And I allow it to flourish for a bit. And then everyone is amazed by it. But in the evening, I blow on it and it's gone. After these four pictures, God asks us in verse 25, Now, what in all creation are you going to compare me with? The answer is that there is no one on God's level. There is no one in his class. There is no one in his league. All these things that seem so big to us, they are nothing before God. There are two things that everything in creation has in common. They are time-bound and they have limits. There is a beginning to the great mountains. There is a beginning to the sun. There is a beginning to the galaxies. There is a limit to the size of a nation. There is a limit to the size of your strength, to your knowledge, to your wisdom, to your lifespan on earth. But now when we come to God, he is so unlike creation because he is not time-bound and he is not limited. He is eternal and he is limitless. He is self-existing and even creation itself cannot contain God. There are only two categories in this universe. God and creation. God and everything else. An angel in heaven isn't any closer to being like God than a worm in the ground. Nothing is like him in creation. But secondly, and these next two points will go a lot faster, but secondly on your handout there, you, you have a title called Overlooking the Obvious. When we come to verse 27, it's kind of a shocking scene because instead of Israel trusting in and hoping in a God like this, we find them complaining about God. Instead of their hearts soaring with hope, they are sinking in despair. Many of us perhaps know of Stephen Hawking who passed away this past year. Stephen Hawking was a beloved and a very intellectual professor in Cambridge. He was an author and he was a pretty outspoken atheist. He did say one time in an interview that if there is a God, I don't think there is, but if there is a God who created this vast universe, he would be so big to even notice us. That is sort of the attitude Israel has here about God. They're saying, God does not care about me. God doesn't see me. God is so big. He's so transcendent. He doesn't hear us. He's not near to us. A few years ago, I was attending a church in Mississippi. It's a, it's a smaller church. It's under about 200 people. And our church usually had lunch together in the church building. And, and one time I was uh, standing in line getting food, and I noticed that one of the ladies was pregnant. And I said to the girl beside me in line, did you know that she's pregnant? And my friend looked at me in shock and said, yeah, about six months now. 
I mean, she was pretty pregnant. It was pretty obvious, and yet I missed it. And she began to laugh, and she said, oh, my gosh, you, you didn't know she was pregnant? In my defense, you know, I was off Facebook all, all, at the time, so I missed all the announcements. Um, you know, and I'm a guy, so there's things in the fridge that's right in front of my face that I don't notice. Have you ever had a moment like that, though? where there's something so obvious, everybody knows about it, everybody knows that fact, and they look at you and they think, you didn't know that? You might be thinking, well, I have some stories like that, not as bad as yours, but I do have some stories like that, yes. Well, there is something very big and obvious right before the face of Israel, and they did not see it. That is why God pressed them with these questions in verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? God is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. You say that your way is hidden from me? Have you not heard that the Lord's understanding, his knowledge of you is unsearchable? That he knows you more than you know yourself? That he knows every hair upon your head? God says in verse 26, lift up your eyes and look at all those stars. Who put them in its place and who holds them together? I'm told that there are at least 100 billion stars in our galaxy. I'm told that in our universe, there are more stars than there are grains of sand on the earth. I've read that there are as many as 500 billion more galaxies and each with their own billions of stars. And God has counted all of them. And God has named all of them, and God upholds all of them in their place. If God does that with stars, how much more valuable are you to him? If God is holding the universe together, is he not big enough to sustain us and uphold us? You see, this morning, perhaps we either have low views of God, or maybe we have hard thoughts of God. We think that You know, like Israel, God is so big, he's so majestic, he would never know what's going on in my little life. My problems are not important to him. Maybe I shouldn't bring my case before God. Maybe he's only dealing with big world issues and not the issues in my personal life, in my home, and at work. But don't overlook this obvious truth because creation clearly gives evidence to this, that if God created everything, then he has no limits He doesn't grow tired or weary, and that means God doesn't grow weary of us, of me. Your case is not unknown to God. Your your prayer, your heart cry is not passed over. God's greatness is displayed in making himself available to work for you. That's why in verse 10, he says that his arm is like a great king that could destroy his enemies, but that same arm in verse 11 is the same arm that carries his people, like a shepherd carries his, his sheep. There is not any other God like our God in any other religion. A God who is so high above us and yet a God who stoops down to know us. A God who is so powerful and yet a God that is so compassionate and caring. God is bigger and greater than any of your enemies. Every foe, every circumstance, everything that threatens your life this day. He tells us to wait on him. He will give us all that we need in any given situation or circumstance. It's not that your problem all of a sudden disappears. It's not that they go away. But it means that our outlook and our response to them 
they are a reflection of our trust in God. The all-sufficient God is able to give you all-sufficient grace in your trials. Well, lastly, and very quickly, we need to have a high view of God. Israel, in Isaiah chapter 40, it, it is the gateway to all the gospel promises in the next 26 chapters. It has to be the gateway, this chapter, because the promises of the gospel, like in Isaiah 53, where the sins of the world are laid upon Jesus and he's bruised for our iniquities, the whole picture there has no foundation if Isaiah 40 isn't true. The way that we can benefit from the gospel is we need to get a clearer view of the majesty and the immensity of God. In Isaiah 40, when God gives promises to Israel, he doesn't start with the promises. He starts with the descriptions of who he is and his character. Our hope of the promises being fulfilled is based upon who he is. What if you were to go back this morning to the descriptions of God that we just talked about in verses 20, 12 to 26, and we take those descriptions, and now we come to the New Testament, and we apply them to Jesus. We apply them to the promises of Jesus, like when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is there any fear that this Jesus, who is described in Isaiah 40 with unlimited power, is there any fear that he can't give you rest? How this changes our approach to the Bible. This can enlarge every word of the Bible by getting a larger view of God. When you read the descriptions of Isaiah 40 and then you think about Jesus in the New Testament, how different, how much more weight the gospel has to us. How different the birth of Jesus takes when we consider that the babe in the manger is the one who measures the universe by the span of his hand, and yet now he's a helpless babe in his mother's arms. Behold your God in the manger. Behold your God, the God of Isaiah 40, giving himself to be on a cross and to die for the sins of his people that are so small and insignificant like specks of dust before him. Behold your God laid in a tomb. Behold your God conquering death and hell and sin and rising on the third day. Behold your God now in heaven as the God-man who is our Savior. You see, if you don't have a big view of God and a big view of self and a small God, then what kind of size of a cross are you going to need? Well, I need just about a cross that's about from here to here. We need a Jesus that did about this much because I'm a pretty good person and God is not much bigger than me. But if you have a God who is infinite and there's this infinite gap between us and God, well, what kind of cross will we need then? An infinite cross. And that's why I intentionally skipped over verse 15 where God said, Lebanon's trees and all of its animals... They're not big enough to be a sacrifice to me. Lebanon in that time had the biggest full-grown trees, and they were legendary, kind of like the redwoods in California. And God says, cut them all down. Build them a big pile of wood to the sky. Take all the animals of that forest, slaughter them, put them on top, light a fire. Do you think that I would notice? 
The nations are as nothing to God, and so are all their religious works. If all of America and China and all the nations were to get together today and make a big sacrifice to God and to start acting moral, it would not earn God's favor for one moment. The root problem of thinking that if we do good works that will earn salvation, the root problem of that is that we have a very small God. We think perhaps that we're going to buy God off. You know, if we come to church and we get out of bed while others are sleeping, I could have done other activities. And we say to God, surely God sees my sacrifice I'm making this morning. I could have done this, but I decided to go to church. Surely this pays off for some of my sins for my account to God. But remember that even if the biggest sacrifice to God were the trees of Lebanon, it would not impress God. Don't you see? The only, only the God of Isaiah 40, only he is big enough to deal with her sin problem. That is why God himself had to become a man and to do the work of salvation that no man could do. Only God could atone for sins. Only God is big enough to carry the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. I entitled the sermon, Lift Up Your Eyes, because so often we need to get our eyes off of our smartphones and our TVs and our Facebook feed and the internet and our circumstances, and we need to lift up our eyes and to look to him. That is what eternity is all about. We have this infinite God that is everlasting enjoyable, and therefore it is impossible in your pursuit of God to ever get bored. If God wasn't eternal and infinite and awesome, then heaven would get pretty boring. But because he is not, because he is infinite, it is going to be an everlasting enjoyment. Are you captured by that thought this morning? That no matter how long you've been in church, you can still press on to know God like never before? You see, the cure for idolatry, for our pride, for always searching for something more is to behold our God. And when we look on him, our souls are satisfied. That is the good news this morning. That is the heart of Christianity. Christianity is not about primarily a moral system or a way of living. It is first a personal relationship with the one who made you. This is the central matter of the gospel. Only in God is satisfaction. Only in God is peace. And only in God is hope. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you, Lord, would look upon us this morning and that you would have mercy upon us. God, deliver us from living a life apart from you. Deliver us, God, from going our whole lives and at the end we missed how awesome and how amazing you are. Teach us, Lord. Take us by the hand and teach us to walk with you. Father, deliver us from the kingdom of good words and intentions. And would you grant us power from on high? Would you strengthen us in this coming year to look to you, to wait upon you? Father, forgive us of our low and views of you. And we ask that we would ponder anew what the Almighty could do as we enter into a new year. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.